Good morning, everyone. And we've already had some uh, uh, snippets from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, and um, our focus is going to be in that chapter today. So if you could please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the most significant treatment on the resurrection in the whole of Scripture. Uh, In it, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of the historical fact of Christ Jesus' resurrection, his bodily, physical resurrection from the grave. But then he explains how this benefits uh, all those who come to place their faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, the, the promise that they too will experience a glorious bodily resurrection and experience victory over death. And uh, I'm going to outline the major aspects of this passage in a a little moment. But our focus is going to be on the last nine verses uh, of the chapter. So I want to begin by reading out those uh, in full at the start. So 1 Corinthians 15, and let's read verses 50 to 58. The Apostle Paul says this, I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Well, I have the great privilege this morning of speaking about the hope and the victory that has come through Christ's bodily resurrection. Now, hope is something very important. It can keep a person going when all around seems hopeless. Take hope away from a person and they will not long endure. But the value of hope has everything to do with what it is we place our hope in, the the object of our hope. If that object is not real or we have no assurance of it being fulfilled, then our hope is merely fanciful. When the Bible speaks about hope, it is not some pipe dream. It is based on the reality of what God has done and the assurance of what he will do in the future. Because God has raised Christ from the dead, we can trust in the promises of what he will do in the future. So when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not in a worldly sense of hope. It means a confident assurance. So let's briefly outline the Apostle Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 15 
I want to do that in order to grasp the significance of these final few verses. So turn with me back to the start of this chapter and we're going to read the first eight verses. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is good news. It is the gospel. It is good news, the good message. It is the message that Jesus proclaimed. It's the message the apostles preached. It's the message that the first century believers stood upon. And it's the same gospel we are to preach and to believe today. The good news is that Jesus has died on the cross and has risen again for the forgiveness of sin. It is good news because he died for the sins of all who would believe in him. Remember those famous words from scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Christ's death was not just some random action or accident either. It was in accordance with the scriptures as Paul writes. That means it was prophesied, predicted many times, many years before it actually happened. His death was not made up either. There was proof. As Paul says, he was buried. People knew where the tomb was. People laid his body there. Guards stood watch over the tomb. But Christ's death is only half the picture. If he remained dead, if he remained in the tomb, his body slowly decomposing, if his bones were to be discovered in the next week, then what would that mean? It would mean that his death was deserving. It would mean that he was a sinner like the rest of humanity and that God the Father had judged him appropriately. The same judgment that belongs to each one of us before holy God. The wages of sin is death. But that's not what happened, is it? The glorious truth, as we are told elsewhere in Scripture, is that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, while remaining fully God, also became fully human. And in his humanity, he lived a life of righteousness, of perfect obedience to the Father. A life without sin. So that he might become a perfect substitute for those who would receive him. That is why Christ's bodily resurrection is so important. 
That's why it's not just the proclamation of Christ's death that matters, but the proclamation of his resurrection. So the good news is also that Christ was raised on the third day, as Paul says here in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ was raised from the dead means that his sacrifice was right and true and acceptable to the Father. His bodily resurrection was vindication of his holiness. It was proved right. His sacrifice was acceptable. And as with his death, his resurrection was not made up either. It was not some fanciful story that the early church fabricated to to help their cause go on after their leader had died. No, that too was in accordance with the scriptures. That means it too was prophesied, predicted many times, many years before it happened. And there was also proof. He appeared to many. If the people Paul was writing to in Corinth had any doubt about uh, what he was talking about, then they could track down one of the many witnesses, the eyewitnesses of Christ's bodily resurrection and go ask them for themselves. Now, to be sure, while the body Christ was raised in was his own body, it was transformed into a glorious resurrection body. As such, he could do things that that we can't possibly get our own heads around logically, like appearing and disappearing in different places, walking through the walls of a, a locked room. And yet at the same time, in all these instances, Jesus is at pains to show that he's not merely a spirit, but has a robust physicality. Take the evidence from Luke's Gospel, in chapter 24, for instance. When Jesus appeared to the disciples behind the locked door, he said this, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. If Jesus had not physically been raised from the dead, he's going to a lot of effort to prove otherwise. But if we can believe that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, merely by the power of his word, then really, why should any of us hold out on believing the truth of Christ's bodily resurrection until we can rationalise our own rationalize it in our own minds the death and resurrection of the lord jesus shows us very clearly that salvation is not merely about our own our spirits or our souls but about our whole selves for an essential aspect of what it means to be human is that we have a body but if we continue in 1 corinthians 15 and and we look to verse 12 we see that Paul had to deal with a big problem in Corinth. You see, in the Greek culture that Paul was writing into at Corinth, there was this this dualism. There was a, a distinct separation in the people's minds between the soul and the body. It was thought that the soul was immortal and good, and the body was mortal and bad. This meant that it didn't matter what you did with your body. 
And that explains some of the gratuitous behaviour the Corinthian believers were getting up to uh, that Paul had to address earlier in the letter to the Corinthians. Now, in Hebrew thinking, which is biblical thinking, which is what God has divinely revealed about reality, humans have a soul and a body. And these are intimately connected. When believers die, there will be a temporary separation of our souls and our bodies, but that is an intermediate state, a state that will last until God has saved all his people and then there will be a final resurrection where our souls and our bodies will be rejoined forever. Now Paul, he draws out the illogical nature of the Corinthians' argument in in verses 13 to 19, saying pointedly that if the, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, they were proclaiming that, you know, they believe Christ raised from the dead, but then at the same time they're saying, well, we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But if Christ has not been raised, then no one's going to be raised and there's no hope of salvation. Because it means that Christ could not have been raised. And if he remained physically dead, then death has not been defeated. And there will be no hope for any of us at all. After showing the utter foolishness of that argument, Paul counters with reality in verse 20, saying, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's bodily resurrection means that those who believe upon Christ have the assurance that they too will be raised as well. The first fruits of a harvest were the guarantee of what was to come. Christ's resurrection means our resurrection. That's not wishful thinking. That is a promise. All people will experience resurrection, those who believe in Christ will be raised to everlasting life. Those who do not believe will be raised to everlasting torment. But Paul's focus in this passage is on the blessing that will come to believers. For their sins are forgiven in Christ and death is no longer an enemy. Verses 29 to 34, Paul deals with some further foolishness that was arising See, those who disbelieved in the resurrection of the dead were still doing certain things that were completely pointless if there was no resurrection of the dead. As Paul said in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's go and play golf on a Sunday morning. After this, Paul anticipates another argument against the future bodily resurrection of all people. Verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? How does Paul respond? Verses 36 to 38. You foolish person. Subtle. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So what is Paul's point here? 
His point is that we can easily look around the world around us and, and see ample illustrations that give us understanding to the bodily resurrection. In farming, for instance, while a seed looks different to the plant, there is still continuity. A wheat seed doesn't turn into corn. Just as there is transformation in nature, so there will be when it comes to our mortal bodies at the resurrection. As Paul says from verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And it's really, it's that last aspect that puts many people off. They say that a spiritual body is, is not actually a physical body. So we don't need to believe that, you know, Jesus physically rose from that, or that we will have physical bodies at the resurrection. But that's not what Paul says, is it? Paul contrasts a physical body with a spiritual body. Both are bodies. One is fit for this world, one is fit for the world to come. And the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth, is entirely a physical realm. The wonder of what Christ has achieved for his people is summed up in verse 49, where Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, all of humanity is like Adam in its frailty, but by God's grace, believers will be made like Christ in his indestructibility. So having laid this groundwork, I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at the last nine verses of 1 Corinthians 15, looking at this glorious victory over death that Christ's resurrection brings and the reason why believers can have an unshakable hope. And the reason why those who do not believe in Christ should consider carefully what can only be experienced through faith in Jesus. So the title for this morning's sermon is The Resurrection Hope. And in verses 50 to 58, there are four things I want us to see today. The first thing we need to see is the problem. Verse 50, there is a problem that faces us all. This is seen in verse 50, where Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Here's the problem we face. Eternal life is found in the kingdom of God, but our bodies are not capable of living in God's holy and eternal kingdom. The great 5th century theologian Augustine explained that when God first created Adam and Eve, the the first humans of whom we all have come through, he made their bodies with the ability to die and the ability not to die. See, when Adam and Eve were first created, death was not a foregone conclusion. If they obeyed God's commands, uh, they could have eaten from the tree of life and experienced eternal life. But they chose to disobey. 
Eating instead from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree God had expressly forbidden them not to eat. And death was the punishment that came, and death is the experience of all humanity from that point on. So our problem is that eternal life is found in the kingdom of God, but our bodies are not capable of living in God's holy and eternal kingdom. Now, how do we come to that understanding from what Paul says? Well, firstly, flesh and blood refers to our physical human bodies. Flesh and blood is directly compared with what is perishable. And then in verse 53, what is perishable is also considered as being mortal. Now, this is different to Jesus' pronouncement to the disciples that a, that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. You see, in that instance, Jesus was proving to his disciples that he was not a ghost or a spirit, but that he had literally and physically been raised from the dead. And with what we read here in 1 Corinthians 15, we understand that while Jesus had flesh and bone... It was not exactly the same as his pre-resurrection body. It was now an imperishable and glorious body. A mortal body, a body of earthly flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God refers to the sovereign reign of God and the realm in which he reigns. While God always sovereignly rules over the whole of creation, those who currently acknowledge that rule are those who have been led by the holy spirit to repentance and faith these are the people that that make up the church but here in corinthians paul is speaking to believers he's speaking to people who have already experienced the regenerating work of the holy spirit they've been enabled to turn to christ in faith they've acknowledged god's sovereign rule they've already inherited the kingdom in that sense so Paul's obviously referring to inheriting the kingdom in a different sense, a future sense. When Christ returns to establish God's kingdom on earth, it will, be, it will set in motion the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, when heaven and earth will be joined for all to see. Our current earthly bodies are not equipped for that age, we will need imperishable bodies that can last eternity. Our bodies barely last 90 years. Eternity is a lot longer than that. So not only must our hearts be spiritually transformed to enter the kingdom, our bodies must be physically transformed as well. And we should not be surprised by this because this is exactly what happened for Jesus, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ became flesh and blood, became fully human so that he could become our substitute and pay the price for our sin in his perfect sacrificial death. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But then Jesus was raised from the dead with a glorious resurrection body, a body that is imperishable and powerful. 
Some will claim that it doesn't matter if Christ has not been physically raised from the dead. But the mounds of evidence displayed throughout the whole Bible beg to differ and if we don't have a physically risen saviour, then we have no saviour at all. But what we also need to recognise is that because Christ has been physically raised from the dead to a glorious resurrection body, so will all who trust in him. Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. Paul elaborates on this wonderful truth in Philippians chapter 3 where he says this, speaking to believers, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So here's the problem. We need our bodies to be transformed like Christ if we are to take part in the eternal kingdom of God. But to this problem, Paul next outlines the promise. In verses 51 to 53, the promise. He begins, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, mysteries are good for entertainment. But in the New Testament, when we read about a mystery, it usually refers to something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. These are incredible truths that God has revealed to bring salvation, joy and hope and assurance. So here in verse 51, another mystery is revealed. Paul says, we shall not all sleep but shall all be changed. Now, sleep is a euphemism for death. Paul's saying that it doesn't matter whether a believer is alive or dead at the time of Christ's return, we will all experience bodily resurrection together. Paul declares that it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. It's not a gradual process, but an immediate action. It's not like the rollout of the NBN, which is still slowly been updating regions at a time. It's not like people just have to wait for the resurrection until it's their turn or people having to wait until each part of them is resurrected one piece at a time. When the last trumpet sounds signalling Christ's return, it will be like the flash of a camera in an instant. And what a glorious hope indeed Paul says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This is what believers in Christ have to look forward to. Paul speaks of this event in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He finishes that with, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, the mystery revealed is not just that we have a need for transformation, but that it is a need that we can rest assured will be met. Believers need not fear what lies beyond the grave. Because God has revealed what he will do. And here is our hope. 
Now, this doesn't mean we can justly fathom the incredible wonder of this truth. However, it does mean that we get to spend every day dwelling on the glory of this truth and the assurance that it will happen. What confidence and peace that brings to our hearts. As we see next, Paul then speaks about the power of the resurrection. Here our confidence grows even more. The power. This is in verses 54 to 57. You see, at the resurrection, believers will experience complete victory over death. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What a glorious truth that is. If our bodies have been closed with the imperishable and with immortality, then death can no longer have any effect upon us. Verse 54 contains a quote from chapter 5 of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And in that context, Isaiah is speaking prophetically about the great messianic banquet at the end of time. And in that moment, all peoples who have come to the Lord in repentance and faith will partake. And we'll no longer fear death, for it will be swallowed up forever. That is the promise for all who trust in Christ. But also in that same passage in Isaiah 25, we see very clearly that those who continue to despise God and stand in opposition to him will experience his judgment. For those who trust and obey, there is eternal life. But for those who persist in rebellion against the sovereign God, there is eternal death. The work of Christ to end death leads Paul to actually taunt death. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is another Old Testament quote, this time from Hosea chapter 13. And in that context... God was delivering a message of judgment to his people because despite all that God had done for them, they had turned their backs on him to worship and glorify idols. God offers a message of hope to them when he declares, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, that is death. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Now sadly, the people of Hosea's day refused to trust in God. And missed out on the blessing and faced instead God's punishment. Paul, however, sees the fulfillment of the promise in Christ. For through Christ, death no longer carries any power over believers. It has lost its sting. What is a death's sting? Verse 56 tells us that that is sin. It is sin that makes death an enemy. In Romans 5, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam's sin brought death into the world, a direct result of disobeying God's commandment in the garden. For before sin, there was no death in the world, but sin opened the door for death. 
However, for all those who believe in Christ, their sins are forgiven and the penalty of death has been paid. So like a bee that loses its stinger, Christ has taken the sting of death upon himself. The sting of death is sin, but that is dealt with by Christ. Paul then explains that the power of sin has also been dealt with by Christ. And what is the power of sin? It is the law, God's law. It's the law that gives sin its power. Now, the law is not sinful, but it has no power to save. It makes clear God's holy standards. But as we are sinners, the law only acts to condemn us for falling far short of God's holy standards. And even those who have not read the written law of God, they still have their God-given consciences which act as an accusatory voice when they go against it. But sin has lost its power over believers because Christ has fulfilled the law. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father and it is his righteousness that is bestowed upon his people. They are declared forgiven and righteous before God. Believers stand justified before God entirely by his grace. So death has become our enemy because of sin. And sin gets its power by using God's holy standard of law to condemn us. That is the situation we are in without Christ. But because of Christ and through faith in him, death is no longer an enemy. God gives believers victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is surely cause for endless thanksgiving and praise to God. For what he's done in Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers always have reason for thanksgiving. We always have reason for joy, no matter what we may be going through in life, whether that's something that we've caused ourselves, whether it's something that others have brought upon us, whether it's a result of living in a fallen world and we feel the ravages of sin and death against our mortal bodies, whatever it may be, we always have reason to give thanks to God because in Christ Jesus, we have victory over death. Though we may suffer and die, it is not the end, for we will go to be with Christ. And when Christ returns to this world, all believers, those who have died, those who are still living, we'll all be raised in glory and all will experience the resurrection of our bodies. We know the last page of the book. So we know that whatever happens before, it is not the end. We have assurance that victory over death has come through the cross of Christ and the full benefits of that will arrive at the divinely appointed time. It is this power over death which leads Paul to his conclusion. And he gives a pronouncement to explain how believers are to live in the light of our confident expectation of future glory. Verse 58 is the pronouncement. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, that is, in light of all that has been said, this is what you should do. In light of the fact that We have a need for transformed bodies. 
In light of the fact that God has revealed the mystery that he will bring that transformation. In light of the fact that at the resurrection we will see the ultimate victory of Christ that he has achieved over all his enemies, including the last enemy, death itself. In light of all of this, Paul exhorts believers to the following. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And why do these things? Because you know that in the Lord... Your labour is not in vain. Believing in the reality of the resurrection leads people into a steadfast, immovable faith and to have hope to endure whatever may befall us. For believers, our assurance of the final victory over death means that we can completely devote ourselves to God's leading. For even if we should experience suffering or persecution or even death, We know that even here we will not be defeated. For Christ is our hope and our victorious saviour. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then can I ask what hope do you have for the future? What is it that you hold on to? How confident are you in the face of death? The scriptures are black and white. If it is true that Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of sin and those who do not trust in him for salvation are doomed to face the eternal wrath of God, then it makes no difference whether you agree with it or not. That is simply what is going to happen. The matter comes down to whether Jesus was raised from death to life. The scriptures give abundant proof that this was indeed the case. Remember as well that when the New Testament was written, it started off as letters sent to the different churches in the different regions. 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth, in in Greece. And when it was written, many of the witnesses to Christ's resurrection that Paul lists were still alive. So Christianity could have been refuted from the get-go if those witnesses denied what Paul had said about them. But that did not happen. They saw the risen Christ and they testified to it. Christ has risen. And so for the non-believer here today, I implore you to consider the words of Scripture. Consider the weight of history. Consider the implications if you remain in unbelief. But also... Consider the wonder of the blessings that Christ has achieved for all who come to faith in him. In coming to Christ, there is the forgiveness of sin. There is a righteous standing before holy God. There is the promise of eternal life in his loving presence. There is the knowledge of future glory in your own resurrection to life in the kingdom of God. May I then encourage you all here today to believe and to stand firm in the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future bodily resurrection of all people and the blessings that specifically means for those who trust in Christ. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony in your word. Testimony to what you have done in history. 2,000 years ago, your son born into this world, the eternal son of God, taking on human flesh, being born into this world, living in complete obedience to you. And then going to the cross and dying the death. That should have befalled each one of us. He paid the perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross. For all who would believe in him. And the proof that that sacrifice was acceptable to you. That your wrath against sin had been appeased is the fact that he rose again. Father, on the cross, Christ had his people in mind. We do not know who they are, but you do. And we pray that your spirit would enable people to respond to Christ, to repent of their sin and to trust in him, to see the words of scripture as being the truth that they are. To see that Christ died on the cross for sin, that he was buried and that he was raised to life and appeared to many. Father, may people see the hope of the resurrection. May we turn to Christ in faith. May we know the joy of being brought to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.